A schismatic is someone who would disagree, let's say, for example, with the church's teaching. And then they might break off from the church with others who share their views and begin a different church. And if that takes place, the schismatic, the person who is causing that division, may or may not be a false teacher. Whereas a heretic is a divisive false teacher. There's a difference. We could put it this way. Not every schismatic is a heretic, but every heretic is a schismatic. A schismatic can be someone who is divisive, yet they believe in all of the fundamental doctrines of Scripture. But a false teacher or a heretic is someone who teaches against at least one of those fundamental doctrines, and at the same time they will always be divisive in some way, shape, or form. When Paul here uses the word heretic, he is referring to any ambitious or unruly person who breaks with the church and then teaches soul-destroying error. Some believe that Paul here is referring to anybody who was divisive in the church, whether they were a false teacher or not. But we do see in Scripture a link between false teachers and divisiveness in the local assemblies. I would also mention, if I could, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, you find there a vice list. And you have many different sins that are listed there by Paul. And he describes these as works of the flesh. That is, works that come forth out of that fallen nature. And there are many different ones that he names. He names murders, drunkenness, wrath, strife, witchcraft, idolatry, and so forth. And in the middle of that list, you find the term heresies. Heresies. Heresies are listed there as an evil, as a work of the flesh. And that's really important because I think many times, while we as believers would view sins in that vice list in Galatians 5 as great moral evils, in our to each, his own, each to his own society, in our pluralistic society, we might be slower to view heresies as great evils moral evils. But think about this. If the one true God has given revelation through which we might be saved and through which we might come to know him and give him glory and honor, if we corrupt that message and if we twist the scriptures and cause division then in the assemblies of Christ, we must understand that those actions too are great moral evils. Great moral evils, just like we would view all of the other sins in that vice list. Scripture teaches that such heretics who do these things will be around until the end of this current era. We're warned about that many times in Scripture. For example, 2 Peter 3.16 warns us of those who, in the Old King James language, has the word rest, W-R-E-S-T, that would, you could, a modern word, distort. Warns us of those who will distort the Scriptures. Remember Paul's warning as he met with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 30. He warned them now that he was departing. He said, men would arise speaking perverse things. Amen. So there's the false teaching. There's the false doctrine that he warns them will be propagated. And then he says they will do these things to draw away disciples after them. So you have the false teaching on the one hand, and linked with that you have the schism. You have the division. They would bring disciples out of the church 
in order to break off and have their own group of followers. Those warnings are common throughout the New Testament. So as Paul gives directions to Titus here, he tells him to reject those people after the first and second warnings. In verse 10, a man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition, reject. Now there are some important lessons I think that I want to bring out here for us to consider as we examine this verse. First of all, we see here that a person is not to be pronounced as a heretic until we have made every effort to bring him back to correct views. Believers may be involved, but of course the church and the leadership must be involved in this process so that the one who is in error can be corrected by or rejected by the authority of the church. That is the biblical layout that we are to follow. If somebody is talking about a false view in the church, instead of just jumping right on them, calling them a heretic, they are to meet first with the leaders, maybe other believers who are involved, and we seek to bring them back to correct views, see them brought out of that error. But if they refuse to do that, they must be rejected by the church as for who they really are, and declared by the church as false teachers. Secondly, pastors are not to waste time with heretics. We see that. After the first and second warnings, they were simply to be rejected. There are some reasons for this. If the pastors or the leaders of the church focus too much on the heretics, this oftentimes emboldens them even more to propagate their false teaching. Also, the leaders of the church have to be able to devote their time to the whole flock, you know, the flock as a whole, and not just spend all their time debating with false teachers. Also, if a man or a woman is spreading erroneous views and they fail to heed the warnings of the church, such a one, here Paul says to Titus, we are to reject. Now, this same word that's translated here in verse 10 as reject is translated in 1 Timothy 4, 7 as refuse. And it's used in reference to Profane and old wives' fables. Also, the same word is translated as avoid in 2 Timothy 2.23 in reference to foolish and unlearned questions. So in the same way that we are to reject the fables, in the same way that we are to reject the foolish questions, the same is true concerning the church and the heretics. They are to be rejected. They are to be avoided. Although excommunication from the fellowship is not directly mentioned here in this passage, it is obvious that such excommunication would be a part of this rejection because the heretic would be disfellowshipped then from the local church. And this could, of course, be a whole number of things. I mean, I'm not going to this morning give you a whole list of what the heresies could be because that would take many messages, but... Even in our modern day, this would not include this would not only include doctrines that are we would consider cultic, uh, that many well-known cults such as Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses would teach, but even theological liberalism or revisionism, which some of us in here are dealing with, as as we uh, as Keith, for example, has the group he starts to protect North Dakota kids. There are so many heresies out there. The local church must teach uh, must treat all of these false doctrines and propagators of those false doctrines as dangerous and heretical. So this is how we are to handle that. Now verse 11 makes it clear why this is so essential if you look there. Knowing that he, that is the heretic, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. 
Notice, Paul uses some words here to describe the heretic. First, he uses the word subverted. Subverted is a metaphor from a building. It describes really a building that is so ruined, it is not able to be repaired anymore. The original word here translated as subverted itself means turning inside out or twisting. And it speaks of one who once knew the truth and now has completely abandoned that truth. And because he turned from the truth and because he rejected the admonitions of the church, there seems to be no hope for restoration, no hope for recovery out of the darkness that he has gone into. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, describes these individuals. Let me just read that for you. It says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come. If they shall fall away, it says, it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance. Seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. This can happen, and it does happen to professing Christians who never had genuine saving faith to begin with, and later on they turn from the truth that they once professed, and oftentimes go into what we would call a subverted condition, where God simply lets them go, and there is no hope for them to ever repent and turn again. Now, we don't know who all of those individuals are. It's not our job to try to judge uh, exactly who those people are. But God knows. And there are certain ones who they simply will never come back. They will never repent. Secondly, he also describes them here as sinning. If you have an old King James translation, it'll say sinneth. Because as they abandon the truth, as they commit apostasy, they are committing a great sin. They rebel against the truth that they received. It would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and to now have turned away from it because now they will have greater condemnation than they would have if they would have just stayed in their unregenerate condition and have never been professors of believing the truth and have never been around the truth. And then Paul writes that he is condemned of himself. That is, he's just condemned by his own words and his own actions. His rejection of the sound teaching as well as his separation from the Christian fellowship those actions that you can see simply condemn him. And he is condemned by the scriptures that he himself may profess to believe. So, Paul gives these directions in verse 10. Verse 11, we see why. Because we see the dangerous condition that the heretic is in and the dangers that he poses to others as he might seek to lead them astray from the truth. This is why these directions are given. We can't just handle heretics any way that we think we should. Scripture lays out in an order for us as a church how heretics and heresies are to be handled. Now after giving these directions to Titus concerning how to handle heretics, he also gives him now directions on how to handle fellow servants and the people of God. So we'll look at that in verse number 12 now. We are shifting years here and changing subjects. How to handle these brethren. Look at verse number 12. He writes, When I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus, be diligent to come unto me to Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. 
So here we have a few fellow leaders in the church mentioned by Paul. The first one is Artemis, whom we basically know nothing about except the fact that he was a faithful co-laborer in the gospel. He is never mentioned anywhere else, though, in Scripture. And then he mentions Tychicus, who was another faithful minister, and he is, though, mentioned uh, in a few other parts of Scripture. Let me just give you those. Acts chapter 20, verse 4, we find that Tychicus accompanied Paul on one of his missionary journeys. The one from Corinth to Asia Minor, he was a fellow laborer with Paul. Also, Colossians 4, 7, it seems that Tychicus was the man who delivered the letter of Colossians to the church at Colossae. And there he is called a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. And then finally, in 2 Timothy 4.12, he is sent to Ephesus by Paul, possibly to replace Timothy as a minister in the church there. Now, I want to mention something. I, I think I have my paper messed up here. Okay. Paul is going to send, not both of these men, but one of these men to the island of Crete in order to replace Titus. So Titus then could join up with Paul at Nicopolis where he would then spend the winter. There Titus could assist Paul. He possibly would be sent to other places to minister and he could obviously update Paul on what was going on in the churches on the island of Crete. Now, in light of what we see here in verse 12, I want to mention a few facts that, you know, typically as we're reading through Titus, we might not really consider. I want you to notice, first of all, Paul's diligence and his hard work in the ministry. If you remember, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. He wrote about that which cometh upon me daily, he says, the care of the churches. It's interesting, Paul, who was once a persecutor of the church, becomes a believer who now loves the churches. He was always sure to see to it that the churches were cared for. And although Titus was to ordain elders at the island of Crete, we saw that back in chapter 1, Paul still wants to send Artemis or Tychicus there to the island to make sure that the churches were in a good order. He had that burden. These men would do the work of an evangelist, and Paul would send them to churches to see to it that they were cared for and to see to it that they were in a decent and in a godly order. So that's one thing we see, Paul's hard work. He was not a lazy minister. He was a hard-working servant. Secondly, there are at times some misunderstandings concerning the role of Titus and this letter. And let me explain to you why. I don't know what translation you have there. I have the King James and the, I have the Thompson Chain Reference Bible here. I don't know if you have this near us, but at the bottom, below verse 15, I have this written. This was written in there by the translator. <clears throat> that the book of Titus was written to Titus, ordained the first bishop of the church of the Cretans from Nicopolis to of Macedonia. Now what the claim is there, and this was claimed by many people, is that Titus was a bishop of the churches on the island of Crete. Like he was the bishop. This view was propagated, for example, by Eusebius, the famous 4th century church historian. I quote from him a lot if you're here for our church history series that we're doing in the mornings. And the reason why this was the view of many is because while in the first century and in the early second century, you find that the local churches were always shepherded by a group of elders, also known as bishops. 
In the second century, there was a change, and there became a separation in the office, and it was claimed that the bishop is now the sole leader of the church, and under him you have elders or presbyters. And so by the time you get to the fourth century, you have historians such as Eusebius who say Titus was a bishop, the bishop of the churches of the Cretans. There are many others who have taught this as well. But in reality, what they are doing is they're taking a certain view of church polity or church government, and they're trying to put that on the New Testament itself. But what we see when we examine the New Testament in the earliest days of the church after the New Testament was completed, there's no denying it. All the local churches, without exception, were shepherded by a group of elders or bishops. At the same time, if Titus was the bishop of the church of the Cretans, why would Paul call him away from that office now? That doesn't make any sense. Rather, it seems clear that Titus, just like Timothy, was an evangelist who Paul would send to the churches to minister and make sure that they were in order. There are also some who claim that this letter was written from Nicopolis, but if you notice, that simply is not the case. Because Paul here even says himself that he is writing the letter, and then he says, I have determined there, that is to Nicopolis where he's heading, to winter. So just want to correct some misunderstandings. Now Nicopolis means city of victory. Many cities held this name in the first century AD. Military conquerors would use this name for a city oftentimes where they had a decisive uh, victory in a battle. And they would want to do that to commemorate their win. Paul's ministry travels, when you study them, you will find that most likely he wrote this letter in northern Macedonia, possibly in Philippi. And soon he would travel to Nicopolis, probably the Nicopolis in southern Greece. That city was founded by Augustus Caesar after he had a great victory over Mark Antony and Cleopatra, if you're familiar with that history. It is there that Paul would go, and there Titus was to meet him. Not long after Titus would be with him in Nicopolis, Paul is arrested. And while he is in prison, he writes his final epistle, 2 Timothy. And we find there in that epistle that Titus was sent to Dalmatia. Let me just read you that verse, 2 Timothy 4.10. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. So Titus would go as an evangelist from the island of Crete to Nicopolis, minister with Paul, and then shortly after Paul was arrested, Titus was sent to Dalmatia. So these are some details that we can pick up from verse 12. Now let's move on to verse 13, where two other fellow ministers are mentioned. Here we read, Bring Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently, that nothing be wanting unto them. Two other men here. Now Zenos, just like Artemis in the previous verse, we know very little about him. All we know about him, again, is that he was a faithful servant of Christ, and he is also said here to have been a lawyer. What kind of lawyer, we do not know. He could have been a Roman litigator, because we read he had a Roman name. But it's also possible that he could have been a doctor in the Mosaic Law and a lawyer in that way. Jewish people oftentimes at that time did have Roman names or they would later you know, take upon themselves a Roman name just like Saul the Apostle eventually took on the name Paul. 
We can speculate, but ultimately we do not know, and it's not essential that we do know, but he was a faithful servant. And then we read here about Apollos. Apollos was another faithful servant that we read about oftentimes in other parts of the New Testament. So, for example, in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 27, we find out there that Apollos was a Jew. He was a man who was born in Alexandria, Egypt. He was an eloquent, eloquent preacher with a great knowledge in the scriptures. There in Acts 18, he boldly preaches Christ in public. And we also read that he was not completely informed about some of the matters of the faith and of the teaching. And so Aquila and Priscilla had to go to him, speak with him, and explain to him the way of God more accurately. And so here again you see an eloquent preacher, a man who was mighty in the scriptures, yet at the same time had some misunderstandings. He was being used by God, but he had to be corrected on some issues. He also faithfully ministered to the believers in the churches at that time. It says there in Acts that he helped them much which had believed through grace. So he's a faithful minister to build up the saints and strengthen them in the faith. We also read about Apollos in the book of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 1 and verse 12, we see there that Apollos had disciples there at the church in Corinth. Now, we mentioned earlier how heretics were notorious for causing divisions in the churches, but there were also divisions that existed at the church in Corinth as some wanted to claim that they followed this faithful minister and another followed this faithful minister. And Apollos was one of those who had a following. Listen to chapter 1 and verse 12 of 1 Corinthians. Every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and then of course the really enlightened ones, and I of Christ. You know, I don't follow any of them, I just follow Christ. In reality, everybody follows somebody. The question is, is are they leading you to follow Christ faithfully or not? But Paul has to rebuke them for this. In the following chapters, he tries to straighten them out so that they do not act in these carnal, divisive ways. Chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians 21 and 22 says, Let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world. And he goes on, all things are yours. 1 Corinthians 3, 5, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers by whom he believed. And then in chapter 4 and verse 6, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that ye may learn not to think of us, or not to think of men above that which is written. So it is a very immature thing. It is a very fleshly thing to make idols of men, churches, ministries. We're not to do that. But you notice here, while heretics loved those divisions, and while they loved to gain a following for themselves, faithful ministers of the gospel did not want that to happen. Amen. Paul and Apollos discouraged division. They wanted the disciples to glory in Christ and to follow him faithfully. But we see here that Apollos had a fruitful ministry. He had many disciples. Paul trusted him so much, he wanted him to be at Corinth for a time to minister to the saints. In the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 16, and verse 12, he says, As touching our brother Apollos, I greatly desired him to come to you with the brethren, but his will was not at all to come at this time, but he will come when he shall have convenient time. So he was faithful. He was fruitful in the ministry. He trusted Paul. Now he wanted Titus, that is, Paul wanted Titus, to supply both Zenos and Apollos with what they needed on their journey to make sure all their needs were taken care of. 
We do not know the exact details of the journey at all. But when they came to Crete, Titus, as a faithful brother and fellow servant, was to help them on their way. This was a very good and important work that Titus would be involved in. Now, in light of that good work, look at verse number 14. And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. So while Titus, as a church leader, as an evangelist, would be involved in this good work, Paul reminds them all the believers are to be involved in such good works as these. Not only the church leaders, but all who are a part of the flock of Christ. Men such as Paul, Titus, Artemis, Tychicus would not have enough time and ability to fulfill all the things that needed to be done. At the same time, since every member in the body is gifted by God to serve in different areas, everyone in the church is to be engaged in the work of service. In fact, I know this is obvious, there are members in the church, there's areas that they are more gifted in than the preachers and the elders. Because just because the elders get up and preach doesn't mean they're gifted in every other area, right? right. So if you look at our small congregation here, there are so many things that always need to be done. And many of you, or all of you, in some way, shape, or form can do them better than Mike and Howard and I. Okay, we get up and teach, we strive to shepherd, but there's so many other things that we can't do as faithfully as you can. And so that's why it is so important to be reminded of how everyone in the body is to use their gifts. That is God's design. That is God's plan for his churches. We also see here that the good works which were mentioned back in verse 8 that we saw previously are to be put into practice by fulfilling practical needs in the church. Again, it's one of those things that a lot, a lot of people don't recognize, but they're just as important. Titus himself would be engaged in a good work to help Zenos and Apollos along on their journey. John the Apostle wrote concerning this same manner, or matter, I should say, in 3 John, verses 5 through 8. Let me read that for you here. He said, Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church. Whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. So there again, just the importance of fulfilling practical needs. Whether helping traveling ministers, helping any pressing needs in the church, such are good deeds, and such is good fruit that the believers can bear. Actually, the phrase here in verse 14, learning to maintain good works, in the Greek means this, to excel or to be in front, to show forth. And it speaks of actually being in front of others in good deeds in such a way that a person stands out as an example in order to influence others also. Not to stand out in pride or for attention, but to stand out so others see those good works and then they are encouraged to follow that example and do the same. Following those godly habits. Finally, verse 15. All that are with me salute thee. 
Greet them that love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. You notice first he gives the greeting to Titus from all who are with him. And then he asks Titus, greet all those who love him. And notice, not all those who love him because of his country or because of his people group. Very important when you think of the divisiveness that's going on today in our land. But notice, for the sake of the gospel. In other words, greet those who love us as Christians. See, that's where they found that identity. It wasn't their cultural heritage. It was in Christ, yep. Christ alone. And then he writes, grace be with you all. That, of course, is the free love of God be your portion. That is what that means. And then you notice this epistle is not just for Titus, but for all the churches. Because he says, a grace be with you all. And then amen, which expresses the desire and hope. So here are some understandings that we can bring out from verses 10 through 15. Now let's just have some practical points before we take the Lord's Supper together. Number one, brethren, from this final passage here in the book of Titus, I think it's important for us to say that we must understand the sinfulness of needless divisions and factions among God's people. It's a very sinful thing. Separation from heresy Separation from dangerous teaching and practice is necessary. But we must be reminded concerning how sinful the carnal factions in the Corinthian church were. Paul had to rebuke that and correct them. And in our passage here in Titus, we must be warned concerning the sinfulness of, sinfulness of heretics who bring schisms into the local fellowships. Think about what the New Testament says concerning godly unity amongst believers. Listen to 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Paul writes, be perfect, be of good comfort, listen now, be one in mind, live in peace. That's a command. We're to strive to do that. Philippians 3, 16. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule let us mind the same thing. So this is God's revealed will for his churches. And this is what we are to strive to have. Whereas the complete opposite of that, false teaching which brings division. Think of what the New Testament says about that. Listen to Romans 16, 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. So notice there, there's the avoiding again. We mentioned that earlier. The rejection. Rejection of the heretics. And then you have the divisions that come because of the false doctrine. So unity is based on faith in the word of God. False doctrine always breaks that unity. And those who bring this about must be avoided. Again, there are so many heresies that one could think of, but just to be practical in our own modern time, consider critical theory, which basically comes from Marx and his friends from the 1800s. Critical theory is designed to divide people. Yes, it is. It's designed to divide nations. It's, it's, its purpose is to divide people against each other. When you take critical race theory, that's basically Marx's critical theory applied to what we might call race. 
And again, it's designed to divide. So if its purpose is to divide, let's say, a nation, what do you think is going to happen when that false teaching is brought into churches? It's going to divide. It's going to divide. So those who promote this heresy must be clearly recognized as dangerous schismatics. I'm trying to clearly apply the word here. Anyone, it doesn't matter. Baptist, Pentecostal, Reformed, whatever. If they are playing around with critical race theory, and they're bringing that into their churches, and they don't repent of it, it doesn't matter what else they claim to believe. That's right. They are being dangerous schismatics. Because they're using false doctrine to divide Christians. Now, I read those verses earlier for a reason. To show you how biblically... It is so important to have unity in the faith amongst God's people. Okay, you can hold to a certain doctrinal statement and say, I affirm these teachings. But then you bring in false teaching at the same time into the churches and hold to something like critical race theory. It doesn't matter the other things that you affirm. You understand what I'm saying? We must, we can't say, well, we won't treat them that way. We'll treat other false teachers this way. But because they hold to this, this, and this, it doesn't work that way. If they refuse to repent, they must be avoided and then disfellowship with. Look at 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. It says this, And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So there again is the right attitude that we're to have. We just don't proclaim everyone as a, as a heretic right away. We desire, if believers are mixed up into something, to see them brought out of that and and see rightly. Uh, Yet there are others who are fully committed to their errors. And if they demonstrate that, no desire to repent, no desire to change whatsoever, and you can't correct them in any way, then the church just has to deal with that issue. Because the unity of the church is so important to God, heresy must be abhorred. And also, we must be reminded that we can disagree on some matters without breaking off into sects ourselves. Amen. Scripture does teach that there are gnats and camels, right? There are certain things that are more fundamental than others. And so, to break off into sects ourselves on what we would describe as gnats is not a very wise thing to do. Second practical point. We are reminded from this passage that certain heretics who refuse to be corrected, remember we saw the Bible here describes them as subverted, that is ruined with no hope of return, and they must be avoided. We don't always know who they are, but if they give evidences of no hope of correction whatsoever, then they must be avoided. They've turned from the light to the darkness. Now, a practical point here I want to say is that, brethren, it is so important for us never to fall into the trap of worshiping men in ministry, preaching, and people you watch on the internet. At times, what you find is people who would teach good or people who had a good reputation, later on they fall, and truths about them are revealed, and then their followers fall along with them. And so a practical point is, we are never to have such a shallow faith that relies on the gifts of others 
and dies because of the failures of others. You see, that's a shallow faith. You see, our faith must go deeper. And as our culture becomes more and more hostile to the Christian faith, we're going to see a lot more of apostasy again and again and again. And if someone has a shallow faith that's not genuine, they can be susceptible into following others into their apostasy. Or if somebody falls, say, I just can't believe this anymore. No, no, no. Their faith must go deeper. It must be rooted and grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps some of you in here were influenced by others and then disappointed by them. But you know what? Christ's work continues no matter what they've done. And his church is built regardless of the unfaithfulness of others. Think of Judas. He had many gifts. Hey, he preached. He healed people most likely. He could probably do many of those supernatural gifts as Jesus sent out his disciples to go and heal and cast out the demons. But he turned from the truth. He betrayed Christ, never to return again. And then 50 days later, 3,000 souls are saved. You see, it doesn't matter what an apostate does. Christ's work continues Amen. on. A man may become a heretic and he will not return. That does not mean that Christ himself should be departed from by us. Listen to the 17th century Puritan Matthew Mead in his book, The Almost Christian Discovered. He puts it this way. The raven was an unclean bird. God made use of her to feed Elijah. Though she was not good meat, yet it was good meat she brought. A lame man may, with his crutch, point you to the right way, and yet not be able to walk in it himself. A crooked tailor may make a suit to fit a straight body, though it does not fit him that made it because of his crookedness. The church, which is Christ's garden enclosed, may be watered through a wooden gutter. The sun may give light through a dusty window, and the field may be well sowed with a dirty hand. And then he writes, Balaam makes a clear and rare prophecy of Christ, and yet he has no benefit by Christ. God may use a man's gifts to bring another to Christ, when he himself, whose gifts God uses, may be a stranger unto Christ. One man may confirm another in the faith, and yet himself may be a stranger to the faith. Then he gives some historical examples. Pendleton strengthened and confirmed Sanders in Queen Mary's days. That's Queen Mary when thousands of Protestants were persecuted. 300 Protestants had to flee to Geneva because they were going to be burned at the stake. Well, Pendleton strengthened and confirmed Sanders in her days to stand in the truth he had preached, and to seal it with his blood, and yet afterwards played the apostate himself. Encourages a man to die as a martyr. God used him in that, and yet later he himself departs from the faith. Johannes Spicerus, a famous preacher of Augsburg in Germany in the year 1523, who preached the gospel so powerfully that diverse common harlots were converted and became good Christians. And yet, himself afterwards turned papist and came to a miserable end. Put it another way, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. There was a story that I heard from Richard Richard Wormbrand in his teaching. In Romania, 
prior to Nazism sweeping its way through there for a time and then communism coming in and taking over the Soviet Union, there was a man in Romania, a Christian man, who wrote such wonderful hymns, beautiful hymns, well-known hymn composer, and they were sung, very popular. And then after a time when communism came there and took over and persecution, persecution really came in strong in Romania, eventually that man was persecuted and he came out with the communist hymn book. And Christians were shocked. They thought this man would never do such a thing. And that's what he did. And he turned away from orthodoxy. May your faith then, brethren, here's the point, may our faith not rest in men, but upon Christ. And if some of you have been influenced by, for a good time, later is subverted, stay on the course Amen. and never follow into destruction. Mm -hmm. Finally, really simply, let us remember Christian charity. May we help one another meet pressing needs and do so. When we do so, we do it unto Christ. Remember verse 14. And let us also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses that they be not unfruitful. It's our nature to be so fickle, you could say. We're so quick to turn on others, especially when our radar is up a lot of times concerning some of the subjects I'm talking about. We need to be careful for that. We need to be faithful, loyal, and reliable. And we need to be ready to meet pressing needs of those who comes amongst us, those Christians, and for those who are with us in our local assembly. When we do it for our brethren, according to Matthew 25, yep. we do it for Christ. We do it for the one whose body was broken and whose blood was shed for us. And so if his body was broken for us, we ought to minister to his spiritual body, the church. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you this day for the book of Titus. We thank you for moving Paul by your spirit to pen this letter for this faithful servant. And although short, only three chapters, really only about 45 or 46 verses or so this book, we thank you for the many things that you teach your church through it. And we want to pray this day that you would be glorified through our study of it, and that the church here would be built up more faithfully in Christ through it, by your Spirit applying that word to each one of us. And may we, as your people, faithfully minister the gospel in the time and in the place that you have put us. For your glory we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ.